Okay. Hello, it's good to be here. Um, great to carry on our, our series in Revelation. Uh, it's great because the title today is Father's Day, and the title of the message is The Woman and the Dragon. So um, ma- make of that what you will. Uh, happy Father's Day. It's, uh, yeah, it's great to be able to carry on kind of our series in Revelation. I just kind of want to say, I don't know if you've ever been to the theatre or been to a play. I've been a couple of times to, to the theatre. And one of the things that you have is you have act one, usually, and then there's kind of an intermission. Curtains come across, you have a short break, and you have maybe act two, then maybe even act three. Uh, well, today our kind of story through Revelation in chapter 12 is a little bit like that. It's best if we can kind of break it down into almost three chunks, and we'll look at it as we do that. And just to say up front, as we've said with our Revelation series, as I read through this passage... Don't get lost in the symbolism. Lots of the revelation is full of allegory and symbolism. And lots of the characters represent other things. And we'll draw some of that out together as we go. And I'll make a couple of quick comments as I read through the text as well. So let's read Revelation 12 together. And then afterwards uh, we'll see how God wants to uh, speak to us through it. Starting at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Very quickly, when he kind of talks about the stars being swept out of heaven, that's just what we would call fallen angels or demons. And we'll carry on going through. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. 1260 days is three and a half years, and that was just a very significant number for the Jewish people. It carries a lot of meaning. I guess a little bit like 9-11 for us, it was symbolic, uh, and it really is a time when the Jewish people were persecuted by the Assyrians, but in the end, they were victorious. Let's carry on. Verse 7. Now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's just a fancy way of saying three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be able to come and study your word this morning. Lord, we know that around the world there are believers of, of, of Christ who would be put in jail or killed for doing this very act. And we don't take it for granted. And Lord, we pray, let us now come humbly before you to be open to learn and speak to us. Lord, open our eyes that we may see more of who you are through this text. Let us leave different to how we came. Lord, open us to see, Lord, more of your glory. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, kind of act one, I guess we could call it the problem. It starts with two signs. John is very clear up front. These are signs that I have seen. And he kind of introduces us to three characters, as you would maybe at the start of a play or, or a book. And the three characters we get are a mother, the woman, a dragon, and a child. And we'll kind of go through each one and see what do they represent. And so let's start with the first character we're introduced to, the mother, the woman. It says, a sign appeared in heaven, a woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She's pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. As you read on, it goes on to say she gives birth to a child who represents Christ. So it would be very easy for us to assume, oh, this woman must be Mary. Remember, this is not a literal story. In fact, the, the woman represents two things. The first thing, which is what she really represents, is Israel. She represents God's people, the church. That's why the sun and the moon and the stars form her robe and a footstool for her crown. It represents Israel. And if you know your Old Testament, if you've read Genesis 37, you know that the story of Joseph. Joseph has a dream. And in Joseph's dream, he says the sun, the moon, and the stars are bowing down to him, which represents all of Israel bowing down to him. And that's what kind of that imagery represents. So the, the woman, firstly, she is the church. She is Israel. She's God's people. Well, the second thing that she represents is Eve, the first mother of creation. The one who is promised that her seed will crush the head of Satan. So that's the mother. We've got two things she represents. The second character we get introduced to is the dragon. The dragon is the enemy of the mother, the enemy of the church, and is no other than the devil himself. In verse 9, John makes that really, really clear. The devil is described with horns and with crowns. He is powerful. Some of the imagery mirrors the description that you get of the beast in Daniel 7. And this dragon is waiting by the mother, waiting to devour her seed, waiting to destroy the child. And so we get our third character, the child, who John wants to make really, really clear the child represents Christ, the Messiah. And he makes that plain by giving some description that says that he will rule with a rod of iron, which is a reference back to the second psalm. There's a a promise that David makes that there'll be one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So this is who that is referring to. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the dragon has a problem with and wants to devour and kill. And we see that throughout Scripture. Even when Jesus is literally born in the Nativity story, Herod tries to kill him. We see that he wants this seed crushed because he knows that in the end he will crush his head. But the child is, it comes into his grasp, but then very quickly ascends to heaven. He's unable to kill it. He ascends to heaven to his throne. 
So we've got these three characters. And then, once the child ascends, the mother is then pursued. It says the mother then flees into the wilderness for 1260 days. And let me just kind of explain that a little bit. There's lots of synergy when you read this story between the Exodus story. If you like, the, the dragon is Pharaoh, is Egypt. First of all, Pharaoh wants to kill the Mausid. And the woman is, is the people of Israel. And the people of Israel, they flee into the wilderness and Pharaoh and Egypt pursue them. In the same way here, this woman, the, God's people flee into the wilderness and the dragon pursues. The wilderness is a place where God's people go for protection. It's a place where God's people go for nourishment. That's what it says here. As we resist the evil one like the woman here, as we flee into the wilderness, we are completely dependent on him for safety and for nourishment. And throughout Scripture, the wilderness is associated with two things. One with protection, with God's protection, but also with testing. The people of Israel were tested in the wilderness. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. When the church is in the wilderness, they are always protected, but they are tested. And we see that here. And so Act 1 kind of draws to a close. So a very quick recap. You've got the woman who represents God's people, the church. You've got the dragon, who is the devil. And, they've, and, and the woman's given birth to a child who's the Messiah, who's gone to heaven. And now the woman has is, is, is flee into the wilderness and the dragon is pursuing her. That kind of, the curtains draw, act one comes to a close. You can have a quick break, go to the toilet, get your overpriced ice cream, get yourself set, because act two is about to begin. And this isn't one that you want to miss at the very start of it. The kind of the curtains draw back for act two, and we're calling this one the battle, and it, things kick off straight away. Verse seven says there's a war going on in the heavens between Michael and his angels and between the dragon and his armies. There's this war going on back and uh, to and fro. And in the end, the dragon is defeated, He is cast out from heaven, thrown down to earth. And friends, this represents Jesus' battle and triumph over death and his resurrection and enthronement. When he's in the grave, there's a battle going on in the heavens. There's a battle going on between goodness, uh, between good and evil, between light and dark. And in the end, light wins, good wins. And he's overthrown and the dragon is thrown down. It says in verse 9, the great dragon's thrown down. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He's thrown down to the earth, and his angels are thrown down with him. We can see that the dragon is defeated. And and I just want to spend a little bit of time drawing on the names that John gives him. John gives us this kind of threefold name to the dragon. The ancient serpent, the devil, the accuser, and Satan. And I just want to spend some time kind of drawing out what they mean, because it reminded me very recently, uh, I don't know if you're into football, but uh, there's a football team called Leeds United. And they're quite a big football team. And uh, the season just gone, they were trying to win promotion to the Premier League. And they were due to play another football team called Derby County Football Team. And they're kind of a big kind of promotion clash. Both teams are trying to get promoted. And so what Leeds did is they sent some, some spies, some scouts, to go and watch Derby train to try and figure out what their tactics were. But they were caught and they were blasted in the media. They was kind of, you know, it's not the sort of thing that you should be doing. And they're not the first team to have ever done that. Quite often... Other teams want to try and find out what are the tactics of the other team. Because if you know their tactics, you know how to defend yourself. You know how to defeat them. Well, what John is doing here by listing these names, he's revealing some of the tactics of the evil one. He's kind of saying, in his name there is information. And if you know some of the tactics, we know how to defend ourselves. Later on, he's going to give us three weapons which we can use to fight against. 
But let's just walk through these three names and kind of see what can we learn as God's people about him. The first title he gives him is the ancient serpent. Now, we know that's a really kind of a throwback to the serpent in the garden, the one who deceives Adam and Eve from the very, very beginning. A serpent, a snake, a, a slippery animal, sneaky, and, and they're kind of low down and no good. They lurk in shadows with, with fangs and waiting to pounce and bite and destroy with venom. They know the weakness of their prey, and they wait till that weakness is exposed, and then they try to pounce. Anyone who wants to play around with that sort of animal is very naive and is making a big mistake. He's not to be played around with or messed about with in any sort of way. They are very dangerous animals. And so we see he's an ancient serpent. We need to be wary. The second title that he's given is the word devil. The Greek word diabolos, which simply means liar or deceiver. Cast your mind back to John 8, 44. When Jesus is talking about the devil, he says that, that he is the father of lies. He says there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar, the father of lies. That's who he is. And the devil, his biggest tactic is to persuade us that he doesn't exist. That's his biggest tactic, that we would play down the things that he's doing. That he's not really working, that he's not the one who's behind things. And if we're being perfectly honest, he's done a great job of that in the West. We like to play down the spiritual element of things. We like to pretend that there's not this spiritual warfare going on despite what we read. When we do that, we are helping him achieve one of his lies. But that's not the only lie that the devil tries to feed into our society. The other one is the first lie that he, that he started with in the garden to Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? Did God really say you can't eat that fruit? That is a lie that if we're being perfectly honest, me included, all of us at one point or another have kind of bought into that lie. Did God really say that about government, about Sex, about creation, about drunkenness, about promiscuity, about the authority of scripture, about prayer. Did God really say those things? Did he really mean that? That's a lie that we hear time and time again. A lie that he uses to try and deceive us. Maybe there's lies that you've come here this morning that you've been carrying about who you are in God, about who you are in Christ. Lies that the enemy's been feeding you and deceiving you with. His agenda, friends, is to lead the whole world astray, to lead the church astray, and he uses lies to do that. He uses deceit to do that. They're like arrows. Paul, when he writes in Ephesians 6, says, In addition to this, take up your shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. They're like arrows coming at us day and night. So now we've got a shield of faith to defend ourselves and refuse to listen to those lies. That's the second title. The third title that he's given is Satan, which is the Hebrew word for accuser or adversary. And kind of that comes from, if you know your Old Testament, the, the book of Zechariah. Uh, in Zechariah 3, there's an, Old Testament, uh, sorry, there's an Old Testament high priest called Joshua. And Joshua kind of represents the people. And he's being accused by Satan. Satan says, that, look at your clothes. They've populated filth and dirt. How can you represent the people? And he feels accused. Well, the Lord silences Satan by giving him fresh, clean garments so he can come pure. Well, friends, it's the same for you and I. Often we might come here on a Sunday and we, feel, we can feel accused. You're no good, you're not clean, you're not worthy, you don't deserve to be here. Look at your sin, look at your mess, look at all the things that you've got. And you know what our answer is? You know what? He's right. I am not worthy. 
But the promise of Scripture is that he takes our filthy rags and he gives us a fresh robe of righteousness. The promise of Scripture is that we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. So that when we come and stand, we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who's passed through the heavens. And because of what he's done, we can approach God's throne with confidence to find grace and mercy, knowing that it's not because of what we've done, but because of who he is, that we are considered clean. We stand free from accusation. There is no guilt or shame in the gospel. We don't need to stand being accused. Satan has been silenced. And it reminds me of the, the kind of great hymn before the throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. He looks on him and he pardons me. That's the truth that we need to walk in this morning. That's the truth that we come and sing songs to worship God this morning. Because we know that in the end, Jesus defeats the dragon. He is thrown down. In fact, the next verse says that. There's there's a voice that begins to proclaim salvation. Power, the kingdom of God, and the authority of Christ have come. On the cross, salvation wins. Salvation has come. Christ's authority reigns. His kingdom is beginning to break out, to rule and reign. The one who accuses the brothers, it says there's one, the brothers is the martyrs, the, the saints. The one who accuses them day and night, we stand under accusation day and night, has been silenced, has been overthrown, has been overcome. It says has been conquered. He has been conquered. And notice that it says, they have conquered him. Talking about the martyrs, about the saints. They have conquered him. Which is interesting because earlier on, when you start at the start of the battle, it actually says that Michael and the, and the angels are the ones who defeat the dragon. That it's the heavens who won the victory. But then here it's saying, but they have conquered. The, the credit is attributed to the saints. They get to be the conquerors. Well, isn't that the same for you and me? That Jesus has won the almighty battle, that he has done all the work, yet you and I are called conquerors. You and I get to share in the victory. We've done nothing to contribute to that victory, yet you and I get to say, no, we are conquerors. In fact, Paul says we are more than conquerors. Look at the person next to you, tell him you're a conqueror. We are more than conquerors. It says, doesn't it, that that's our story, he wins the battle. And then what I love is, you kind of have this question, well, how did they win? It says that they are more than conquerors. And then it gives us the three weapons that they had in their, kind of in their arsenal to win. The three weapons. And the first one is the most important. It says they conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Because of the blood of the Lamb, because of what he has done, because there was one who was worthy to open the scroll, because there was one who was worthy to bring about God's plans and purposes for all creation, because there's one who says, I have ransomed people with my blood and made them clean. Because of the blood of the Lamb, we can stand in victory. You can read these verses about dragons and there's chapter kind of in a few next chapters come up, there's beasts and all these things, and you can get down hide, but we know how the story ends. We've read chapter five. We know there was one who is worthy. We know there's the lamb who has ransomed us. Amen? Amen. The second weapon, the blood of the lamb, he says, is the word of their testimony. The devil wants to silence the gospel. He wants to put us underground, to keep us quiet, to keep things hidden. But the word of our testimony refuses to let that happen. That's why as a people we have to keep speaking, preaching, proclaiming, teaching. So we will not be silenced. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. But quite often when there's accusation or or fear of being mocked or we sort of think, sometimes we keep silent. 
Sometimes we pretend that we maybe don't hold this belief or we think, I better not speak up here because I could be mocked. That's exactly what the enemy wants, for the word of our testimony to be silenced. And, and I felt this quite acutely when I went off to university. I, I went up to Nottingham uh, to study theology. And, and when I did that, I went and trialed for the university football team. And to my delight, I got in. And uh, one of the things that you do is, there's, we call them first years, freshers. 25, 30 of us um, got in. And we went to play another university. We have four university teams. And we go up and we thought we were going to play um, Manchester University. And on the way back, they put all the first years on the bottom. And then there's about 60 second and third years sitting on the top deck of this coach. And they say to all the first years, one by one, you've got to come up and stand at the coach. You've got to tell us a joke. You've got to sing a song. And then you've got to tell us a sex story as part of your initiation. So I'm thinking, what am I going to do here? You know, I've already established myself as a little bit of a Jack the Lad from South London. And, and I was kind of, you know, I, I want to be sort of, you know, involved. I want to know some of the lads. I want to, you know, be one of the group. So I go up and I tell a joke and it goes down the tree. They're all laughing. I was about 10th to go up. And... Um, and then I, I sang a song. If you're interested, it was Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. Um, you know, they were singing along, they loved it. It's a real kind of toe tapper. And then I got an encore. So I sang I'm Forever Blind Bubbles by West Ham. You know, and they're singing along, it's all good fun. And then it comes to the sex story part. And so I, I stand there before them and I say, well, I'll be honest, lads, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a virgin, I'm waiting till I'm married to have sex. And you can imagine the reaction. <laughs> so. Some of them are laughing, thinking, you know, good banter, he must be joking, tell us the story. You know, there's no way there's an 18-year-old sort of football lad who's a, who's a virgin. Tell it. And, and then some of them are like just looking a bit confused, like, I, I don't understand. You know, we've not heard that one before. Um, and after a few sort of awkward moments of silence, I just said, no, like, that, 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 that is it. And they said, oh, all right, you can go down now. So I, uh, I sort of go down. Um, yeah. I went down, but do you know what? Four or five of the lads immediately after came up to me when the coach saw them and said, oh, so much respect for you to be able to come up and say that. Maybe 15, 20 of them came to mine and Sylvia's wedding two years ago, witnessed us on the journey getting married. A handful of them have been to hear me preaching down them. I was with a few on Wednesday. They said, we'd love to know when you're preaching. Let us come and we'd love to support you and hear you. And it all comes from in that moment being prepared to say, you know what, I'm going to put my flag in the ground. And this is who I am. The word of our testimony carries power. When you're in, listen, this week you have opportunities to use the word of your testimony in your workplace, in your in kind of in where you live, with your friends. So I'm not going to laugh at that joke. I'm not going to just go along and agree with that story. I'm not just going to say, oh, yeah, I agree. People say, no, actually, that's not, that's not who I am. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what God's been doing in my life this week. I think, wow, are we prepared to, to be bold and do that? Because that is really for the. For the saints, for the martyrs, that's what helped bring them, that's what made them conquerors. Refuse to be silenced, refuse to be embarrassed. And the third thing it says, which is linked to this, is they love their lives. So they love not their lives even until death. They were not afraid to die. They were willing to lay down their lives. Jesus says, doesn't he, if you love your life, if you really just love, you'll lose it. But if you, if you really to give up your life, you'll gain eternal life. They knew that they weren't scared of death because they knew death's not the end. You can kill me for my faith, but I've been promised eternal life. It's funny, it's a, cha- I don't know, it's a challenge when we read that. Andrew uh, Wilson was telling me that last week that there's a gap year in China, a Christian gap year, where one of the questions for him is, you know, are you a believer, have you been baptized? Are you willing to die for your faith? I think, wow, what a challenge. 
Because we forget in the West that there is Christians all around the world who are put in prison and who are killed for professing their faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, that is the history of the church. The very first Mark, Acts 12, Stephen is killed for his faith. And throughout Scripture, all the disciples, James, John's brother, killed for his faith. All the disciples ended up being killed for their faith. In the first 300 years of the church, thousands of Christians were beheaded, were sawn in two, were burnt alive, were fed to part of Roman games, fed to animals, were crucified like their saviour and killed because they refused to stop preaching and proclaiming about Jesus Christ. That is kind of what the legacy of the church is built on. And you think of that, and then there's a challenge to us. Some of us think, I don't even want to tell my colleagues I'm a Christian. I don't even want to admit, I don't invite my neighbour to church. And you think, wow, it's a challenge. For me, it's a challenge. This week, reading that, thinking, wow, Lord, give me a courage. Give me a boldness. to uh, Give me those weapons that can help me fight against the evil one. Let me not be silenced. Jesus promised us, if you follow me, in this world, you will have trouble. He said, you will face trouble in this world. It won't be a walk in the park. There will be difficulty, but rejoice because I have overcome the world. Because in the end, you will be victorious. In the end. And so the kind of act two kind of ends with this battle that, where we see the victories being won in the heavens. We've seen the kind of the, the tactics of the evil one and we know how to overthrow them. We know that the, the martyrs are the conquerors and we see how they've won it. And then he's cast down to the earth. It says, you know, the heavens is rejoicing. But we'll see that it's kind of, I call this scene, or this act, the aftermath. Because we'll see that it's not fantastic news for earth. It says this, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Unable to kill the child, instead he goes after the mother, the seed of, I guess, the church. In other words, you've got the devil, the dragon, goes after the mother, the church. And I want to say this, you cannot underestimate that the devil wants to destroy the church and his people. He wants to destroy the church and God's people. He really does. In fact, it says that he's, he's full of wrath, his fury is intense. And through deception, through um, lies, through persecution, through martyrdom, he will claim the lives of believers and do all he can to pull you away from the church. That's what he's trying to do. But today we rejoice because we know he does not wear a victory crown. He may win a battle, but he never wins a war. The crown is not permanent or lasting. It says in the text that his time is short. His fury is intense because he knows that in the end he has been crushed. He's been defeated, that he will never be victorious until the age of ages. That is God who will be worshipped forever and ever and ever. Amen? And what's also encouraging about the text is it tells us that God actually protects his church. The dragon goes after the woman, goes after the church. But if you read verse 14, you see the protection. But the woman is given two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The church escapes with God-given eagle wings. It reminds us again of the Exodus story. If you read Exodus 19, verse 4, it talks about how Yahweh brings Israel to Sinai and eagle's wings. There's this kind of theme throughout Scripture. It's the same here. He gives wings to bring nourishment. And he uses an eagle. Why an eagle? 
Well, eagles are known for their speed, for their mysterious ways in the sky. They're described in scriptures to support armies and warriors. They're fierce and dangerous. They're in high places. You can read Isaiah 40, a famous maybe passage. It says that even young men stumble and fall. Even when we feel tired and weary, but we rise up on eagles' wings. That we are protected and nourished and strengthened by the great eagle. And so the woman escapes the dragon. And what does the dragon do? He tries another tactic. He can't get the woman, so he decides, you know what I'm going to do instead? He, he, he becomes like a serpent. He uses serpent-like tactics. And it says in verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. The woman, to the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is really saying that from his mouth, he, fr- he comes, brings water out of his mouth, flowing to try to sweep away the church. There's a kind of waves and waves of bitterness, of slander, of accusation, of deceit coming out of the enemy's mouth at the church to try and sweep her away, to get her lost in it, to try and destroy it. But friends, we know that whatever comes our way, whatever the trials of the waters are, however choppy they get, we know that God has promised to bring us through them. In fact, if you read Isaiah 43 verse 2, it says, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Promise to the people of Israel, as they pass through the sea, the waters would not pass over them. We know it's true for us today, that whatever comes at us will not pass over us. I mean, it's a challenge. The book of Revelation is a challenge. And among other things, it's written to a church, to the church to prepare us for hardship, to prepare us for difficult times. It was written to a church in the wilderness, written to a church that were struggling. It reminds us that if we follow Jesus, there will be much tribulation, that we're called to share his cross, that suffering may well belong to us in this world. But holding on to Jesus' promise to the disciples in John 16, he says, listen, pain may come in the night, weeping may come in the night, but joy comes in the morning. In the end, we have a lasting hope. We are never without hope because of the promises that Jesus has given us. Like the church in, in, in Revelation in the wilderness, like us, like the Israel in the wilderness, we're looking for fresh, life-giving water. That's what we're after. But sometimes it can feel like the only water available is poison. It, it can feel like in this society that we live in where there's accusation at the church, we're kind of sandwiched between legalism and, and liberalism and there's kind of different things coming at us from every side, from every angle. We kind of think, man, I feel like I've been in the wilderness a long time. But through it all, we know that Jesus is our good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep who leads us by green pastures, by still, uh, still waters, who restores and refreshes our souls, who pursues us with goodness and with mercy. The poison river of Satan can leave us thirsty for fresh life-giving water, which we're promised. The river of the water of life, clear like crystal, that flows and brings nourishment, someday knowing that all of the rivers, all the threatening and poisonous rivers will be dried up. Someday there'll be one river, the river of the Spirit that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb, a river that makes glad the city of God. And today, friends, as followers of Christ, though as a church we may be in the wilderness, though as individuals we may feel in the wilderness, tested, trialled, persecuted on eagles' wings, we're protected, strengthened, and nourished.
Because of Jesus Christ, our Lamb of God, we can come today and taste fresh, life-giving water. We can drink from a well that never runs dry. We're not barren and dry in the wilderness. We are full of abundant life and life in all this fullness. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the promise of scriptures. Lord, we thank you that you've promised to never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that you have overcome, that you have conquered. We thank you that we are called more than conquerors. And Lord, we pray, help us today to resist the lies of the evil one. Help us to hold on to the blood of the Lamb. Help us to hold on to the word of our testimony. Lord, we pray, let us walk in truth this week. As the enemy comes at us, remind us that we are protected and sealed and saved. And Lord, we pray we be glorified for our lives this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.